Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with the Forgotten Sheep podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about a medical missionary who was named Dr. Zenas Sanford Loftus. So who was this Zenas Sanford Loftus? Um, well, first of all, he was born May 11th, 1881 in Gainesboro, Tennessee. His dad was James H. Loftus and his mother was Nancy Evelyn Loftus. So when he was seven, the family moved to a rural farm in Kansas, leaving Tennessee, heading to Kansas. Now, six years later, six years after they moved to Kansas, Zenas was 13, and that's when he became a Christian. That's when he got saved. And so then later on, the family moved again, this time to Central Texas, and that's where Zenas began to build his skill as a photographer and as a printer. Now, his photography skills are going to be very important to the impact that he has on missions. And I think it's so neat that the Lord will use skills that we may not think that, well, that doesn't seem to fit very well in missions work, or that doesn't seem to fit very well in Christian ministry. The Lord can use all kinds of skills and does use all kinds of skills to build his kingdom. So, as Zenus began to grow older, he became more and more involved in his local church. And this included missions work in the slum areas of where he was living. And later on, he was teaching a Chinese Sunday school class after his family moved to Missouri. So thus far, it's been Tennessee, Kansas, Texas, Missouri. Now, when he was 18, his dad passed away. It was some kind of complications after something, uh, which I was not able to find out the details of, rendered his father paralyzed. So at 18, Zenus was forced to begin to live more independently. And so he begins to work towards his uh, education. At 19, he returns to Tennessee and attends the very prestigious Vanderbilt University. And while he's there, he majors in pharmacy. And he supports himself by working odd jobs. So remember, he doesn't uh, have the financial support of his family after his father's death. So he's doing this on his own. And then after he gets some of his pharmacology classes under his belt, he gets some jobs in uh, working in a pharmacy and in manufacturing laboratories. And he's able to help support his mother that way, which I think is neat. I think that's a, a, a good sign. So he did this very well, and he won the prestigious Founders Medal at Vanderbilt University when he graduated in 1901. So to help us get an idea of the world in which Zenas lived, he was graduating from the university around the turn of the century. Okay, Not the turn of the 2000th century, but the turn of the 1900th century. So 1901. No doubt his mother was proud of him for his educational attainments and also proud of him for being able to support himself and to contribute to her, her support. So um, his next task was to obtain his medical degree, which he did in 1908. And you can find a picture um, on the internet that shows his uh, graduating class when he got his medical degree, and it says Zena Sanford Loftus. It shows uh, PH.C. So I'm not familiar with that. I think it's his... Uh, pharmacological degree. It shows that he got it at Vanderbilt University in 01, and it also lists that he is uh, coming from 
Rogers, Texas. So uh, no doubt that was where his mother was living at that time as he was going to school in Tennessee. So let's talk about Zenos and his call to missions. He was actually called to mission work before he ever attended Vanderbilt University. It happened during the time he was working in church outreaches to the slums and to the Chinese population. And his inspiration was a missionary named Susanna Carson Reinhardt. She had been a missionary to Tibet who had lost her husband and child during the course of her work. And during this time, Zenas felt confident that the Lord was calling him to missions work. Now, as to the place, Zenas is a lot of... Uh, a lot of young people that are eager to work for the Lord asked the Lord to send him to the most difficult, needy field in all the world where no one else would go. And it would not be until 1906 that Zenos would get an idea of where the Lord intended to send him. So that was about five years after he got his um, pharmacological degree. So um, Vanderbilt University sent him to attend a YMCA conference in North Carolina. So remember, he's, he's trying to find out where the Lord wants him to go. And at that YMCA conference, the Lord shows him. While there, he heard about the tremendous need for missionaries in Tibet. Now, Tibet is located, sandwiched between China and India. And um, it was heavily influenced by both nations and primarily known for Tibetan Buddhism. And the... Uh, the native Tibetans, if you start looking at pictures of them, they wear very beautiful clothes, very colorful clothes. And this country has long been regarded as a place of mystery and was nicknamed the Land of Snows and the Roof of the World. Um, it's very high up in, the, my understanding, most of it is very high up in the mountains. It's a very beautiful land, but a very dark land spiritually. Now, Again, you can look up pictures of this. You can find pictures of the Tibetan people from the time period in which uh, Zenos was active. So the Lord was calling him to Tibet. So let's step back for a minute. In 1903, Dr. Susanna Carson Reinhardt, Dr. Albert Shelton, and Flora Shelton were sent by the Foreign Christian Missionary Society of Cincinnati Cincinnati, Missouri, and their task was to open a new mission in Tibet. Not a lot of missionaries had gone to Tibet, had done much work in there. Um, it was very difficult at times to enter the country because of geographic, uh, geographical issues, mountains, snow, um, dangerous passes, things like that. Now, Dr. Reinhardt began to struggle with health problems that forced her to leave Tibet. Now, you might remember we mentioned earlier that Dr. Reinhardt was an inspiration to uh, an inspiration to Zenas. Now, when Zenas heard what happened, he applied to the same mission board. And in 1908, he was appointed to their mission in Batang, uh, in Tibet, and he left on August 31st. So that was 1908. So Zenas boarded a ship called the SS Mongolia, and there were no friends left to see him off. And guys, he would never, ever return to the United States again. 
that was the last time that he saw the shores of his homeland. That would have been the last time he saw his family. And in his writings, he said, There was no sorrow in my heart as I saw the loved native land fading in the distance, holding all that was dear to me except my work. Now, he was absolutely and totally committed to the work that the Lord had given him. Okay? Now, the journey was a long one. Again, remember the time period. They were going by boat. It was a long one. Now, fortunately, Zenus did not suffer from seasickness. Although, after they would reach land, he would have a really hard time walking on solid ground. Now, one of the stop-offs of the journey as they traveled to Tibet um, was Hawaii. And Zenus had a really fun sense of humor, and he was very... Uh, very descriptive in things and he talked about visiting a market in Hawaii and he noticed how some of the fish looked like quote unquote they had been pulled before they were ripe <laughs> and he said some of the other fish he saw on there were just frightening looking and he added that he was thankful that he didn't have to taste a little bit of everything new he encountered um, it makes me wonder if maybe that was his goal was to try everything and he um, was glad he didn't have to <laughs> Now, his descriptions of the sites were both youthful and poetic. And he once stated that he needed a pen dipped in a thousand rainbows mm -hmm. for ink in order to adequately describe the color and beauty of the various places that he visited on his journey. Now, his sense of humor is quite clear in his writings, as is his burden for the lost, which I think is really, uh, really neat that the Lord put that burden on him to be concerned and to pray and to work for their salvation while he was still a young man. Now, he finally gets to Tibet, and once he arrives uh, in the area, he has to keep journeying on in order to get to the missionary headquarters in Batong. So he arrives in Tibet, and he realizes how desperately they need missionaries in that area. Now, I want to point something out. There's... Um, it's important not to confuse true missions with colonialism. Colonialism goes into a place and begins to try to force people into the mode of the um, home country of the missionaries and is not as concerned with their salvation as it is with conformity. Now, Zenus was a true missionary. He was not any, any form or fashion of a colonialist. He goes in there with the attitude of what can I do to help? What can I do to help these people? How can I help them spiritually? How can I help them physically? How can I help uh, them get what they need? Okay, that was his approach going in there. He's not going in there trying to make converts to um, Americanism or Europeanism. He's there to lead people to the Lord. When you hear him comment about the people, he's concerned for their spiritual well-being. He's concerned for the spiritual hunger and thirst that he sees in their lives and that he knows the answer is Jesus Christ because that's how he found what he was hungering and what he was thirsting for. That is how he found his peace and he wants to share that with them. So I wanted to make that very important distinction. So on the road to Batong, as he traveled through Tibet, he encountered a lot of small isolated missionary groups that would plead with him to stay and help them with their work. 
So he began to record his observations and record what they were expressing as their needs to try to help them get, uh, get the help that they needed. He couldn't stay with them like they asked, but he was going to actively try to help them get what they needed. And he once said that he wished there were a hundred of him because the need there in Tibet was so great. Now, during his travels, he helped whoever he could using his medical skills. Now, one uh, in one instance, it was a man who had tried to commit suicide through uh, an opium overdose. And in another instance, it was a young girl who had accidentally overdosed on opium. And one of the things that I'd also like to point out about true missionaries, Bible missionaries, the missionaries that are the kind the Lord sends out, okay, they're not going to say, well, um, young lady, you are addicted to drugs. Uh, you shouldn't have done this. This is your punishment. No, he just helps them. He doesn't care how they got addicted to opium. He doesn't care why they're trying to kill themselves. He doesn't care that they tried to kill themselves. He doesn't care. He doesn't do a, a religion check before he helps them. He doesn't check to make sure that they're not gay or that they're not this or that or whatever. He is there to help them regardless of who they are, regardless of what they're doing. He's there to provide help. His help does not come with judgment. Okay? Uh, while traveling up the... Yonsei River, he was also to able to help some people that were suffering from malaria. And one of the things that he felt was an accomplishment was he helped open up some of the locals' eyes to the usefulness of Western medicine. Now, notice he's talking about the usefulness of it. He's not trying to force them to replace their medicine with Western medicine. But my understanding is he's trying to help them see it as a complement to the uh, medical techniques that they already had. Now, these are just a few examples of what all he was doing as he just travels to his location for missionary work. Now, Zenas made a careful record of everything that he saw. And remember, he's a photographer. He's a trained photographer, so he's able to take tons of pictures on his travels. And he produced one of the best records of Chinese and Tibetan culture at that time. And so he's uh, recording their culture. He's not doing it, to my understanding, he's not doing it in any way that uh, looks down on their culture. He's just recording it. Okay? He was also able to learn far more about the Tibetan monks than any other missionary or Western explorer before him. That says a lot for his, his missionary approach, too, that he was willing to learn about their religion, willing to learn about their belief system. He didn't just automatically discount it as wrong, but he was willing to learn. He was willing to hear about it. And as we'll find out later, they respected him for that. Okay. Now, what he did learn grieved him uh, very deeply. Okay, and um, I am not, what I'm about to talk about, I am not trying to reflect badly on Buddhist or Buddhism. I have a friend who is a Buddhist. I'm stating what Zenus saw and what he felt as he was there. Now, he learned to recognize 
their numerous religious icons, and he learned the meanings of their shrines, uh, the prayer wheels that they had, the statues that they had, and he talked about discovering one prayer drum that had a half a million or more written prayers on it. Now, I quote from Zenos, It struck chills to my heart when I saw these deluded wretches groping so blindly in the dark for help from a higher power. Now, before anyone judges Zenos for using the term wretches, you have to keep in mind that wretch was a word that was used a lot in uh, by, uh, by, uh, Christian songs and in Christian writings. Um, it's not uncommon. We, uh, as Christians, we look upon ourselves as having been wretches, as having been blind, needing salvation, needing the power of God, needing a relationship with God, and we refer to ourselves as wretches. So please keep that in context with what he had to say. Groping so blindly in the dark, again, at that time, true Christians would have agreed that before they were saved, they too were groping blindly in the dark. And in fact, Christians today that truly see and understand what the Lord has saved them from will agree that before we were saved or when we have wandered off from the Lord, when we have backslidden, we too were groping blindly in the dark. It is a Bible teaching. The Bible talks about darkness and it talks about light, that Jesus is the light that shines, that we as Christians are supposed to be lights that shine in the darkness. That light that comes from us is not through any efforts of our own, but it comes through us through Jesus Christ, through the one that brought light into our lives, which were full of darkness and sadness and confusion and emptiness. Jesus brought that light into my life, and any light that I shine that helps others, any light that I shine that reveals things to help others, it is the light that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so when he talks about darkness here, he's not talking about it's just the Tibetans, it's just the Buddhists. It is the state of every unsaved person in this world. There is darkness, and Jesus Christ is the light that shines in the darkness. And he talks about groping so blindly in the dark for help from a higher power. We remember in the Bible that that talks about how the Greeks were worshiping so many different gods and they didn't recognize the true God that would bring them the peace, the forgiveness of sins, the strength, in the joy that they needed. Same situation here. And as a Christian, I know that there have been a lot of people that have thrown these phrases around until they've lost much of their meaning, that have thrown these phrases around when there's not light coming from them, when there's not peace in their lives, when there's not uh, so-called Christians. Okay, there are so many Professing Christians is what um, Charles Finney, the uh, revivalist, called him. Professing Christians. But my friends, the true Christians know that without Jesus Christ, we are in darkness. We are enslaved to sin. We have lives that have emptiness and hopelessness. We don't have the victory that we might want. All of those things. And it's found in Jesus Christ. So that is what Zenos is expressing here. He sees 
their need. He recognizes that need in his own life and that Jesus was the one who met that need. So that those were his comments on that. Now, as he journeyed to Batong, he also visited the holy city of Lhasa. I'm probably mispronouncing this, and I do apologize for mispronunciations. It's not out of disrespect for your culture. I tried to look up as many of these words to, uh, for their correct pronunciation, and I missed this one. So this, this city, this holy city, um, was very special to the Tibetan Buddhist. It had a, um, a monastery there. He um, was one of the first foreigners to ever visit and stay at the Latang Monastery. And he was allowed to enter their holy temple. A lot of this came from the respect that he showed to the Tibetans. It wasn't an arrogancy. It wasn't I've got the answers and you don't kind of an attitude. But it was respect for them. And so he went and he was allowed to stay there. He was allowed to enter the holy temple. And he also became one of the few Westerners who interacted with an abbot at the holy city. Now this experience... I love this. It didn't fill him with pride. He didn't wrap his holy robes around himself and say, well, I'm thankful I'm not a, a sinner like they are, like the Pharisee in the Bible. No, it deepened his burden for the lost people of Tibet. It made him want to carry that gospel message even more intensely. So he's able finally to arrive at Batong, at the Batong Mission. And this was in June of 1909, okay? And he actually made it a month earlier than they expected him. Now, he had been uh, given a nickname even before he arrived. Um, they called him Dr. Lowe, and he was immediately welcomed, and they immediately put him to work in the mission's dispensary. I'm sorry, dispensary. I'm sorry for adding a being like a Texan and adding a few extra, <laughs> a few extra syllables to the dispensary. Um, now, this this is going to give you a good glimpse into this young man's work work ethic. He was determined to take every bit of energy he had and work for the Lord. He was busy treating all kinds of ailments, uh, dislocations, tuberculosis, smallpox, pediatrics opium overdoses, and much more. And during this time, guys, he he wasn't alive. As much as I hate to say this, he wasn't alive for very long after he got there. But he was able to treat between 500 and 600 people. And he worked hard. Let's see. Let me see if I can give you an idea. So he was there less than a year before he passed. Okay? And he treated between 500 and 600 people. He worked extremely hard to discourage the use of opium for ailments. Uh, this was given the high levels of opium addiction in the area. So he tried not to use opiates um, as medicine for them. He worked very, very hard for his patients. And perhaps he worked too hard. So, again, I'm going to point this out. Between 500, 600 people, he... It was just a matter of months, just a matter of months that he was working there. Now, not long after he got there, 
he told his colleagues that he wasn't feeling well. One of the doctors, Dr. Shelton, noticed that Zenas had treated two different patients with smallpox and was concerned that Zenas had con contracted it himself. Now, he had been vaccinated, but in spite of the vaccination, he still caught the disease. And then on top of the smallpox, Zenas contracted typhus fever, typhoid fever. And so realizing the seriousness of Zenas' condition, Dr. Shelton isolated himself with Zenas, treated him, and Zenas passed away on August 12, 1909 at 4 p.m. He was only 28 years old and had been on the mission field for a matter of months and at Batong for a mere six weeks. So again, that's treating 500 to 600 patients in six weeks. And he passed away. He was only 28 years old. Now, we might see that and say, oh, you know, what a waste of that uh, young life. Even from a mission's viewpoint, what a waste. He was only there at the mission for six weeks. But remember, he had to travel there to get to that mission. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now, one of the things in his diary was, O oh Lord, if it be thy will that I find a grave in this lonely land, may it be one that shall be a landmark and an inspiration to others. May I go to it willingly if it is thy will. Now, he wrote this in his diary when he visited the grave of another missionary, a William Souter, also buried there in, uh, near Batong in Tibet. And of all things, guys, Zenas was buried next to Salter. It's almost as if the Lord was giving him a glimpse of what was in his future. But that's where he is buried. And on his, uh, he's in an above-ground uh, crypt, not unlike some of those that you see in New Orleans, in Louisiana. And it says, Greater love hath no man. There are a lot of characters written in... Uh, Chinese and possibly another language, but it says Z.S. Loftus, M.D., died August 12, 1909, aged 28 years. Only six weeks, his final destination, his final missionary destination, and he was gone. Now, though Zenith's time on the mission field was short, he still had a tremendous impact. So let's, let's talk about something here. All his detailed records and photographs, remember he was a photographer, that he took as he was journeying to Tibet and then in Tibet as he journeyed to Batong helped many missionaries come to China and to Tibet with a far understanding of their culture and traditions. That meant when their feet hit the ground, they were more ready than their predecessors to begin actively working and interacting because of all the stuff that Zenus has recorded. Remember they talked about earlier in this, as I was talking about this, there was a discussion about how he had a greater understanding of the culture and of their religion than most of the Westerners, if not all the Westerners, before him. That understanding helped future missionaries as they came into the area. He was keeping a diary the entire time that he traveled there. 
his diary was published and brought many more missionaries to China and Tibet. It opened a door for the Lord to lay a burden on others because of what he had written and what he recorded. Okay, One missionary said that by his death, Zenos brought the mission 50 years nearer to completion in that raw land than otherwise it would have been. His journey there, his presence, and his impact there accelerated that mission's development by 50 years. That is huge. His colleagues named, him the, named the mission hospital after him, and most importantly, Zenith's death led directly to the salvation of many Tibetans. So even though his time on this earth was short, he was still mightily used of God. In his skill at photography, the Lord leveraged that to open up the world to understand this mysterious land and to respect the people there, to respect the Tibetan cultures, to respect the Tibetan religion, to respect the Tibetan people. And another cool thing about this is he threw himself wholeheartedly into his work. He had no idea that he was going to die in such a short period of time, only six weeks. But he threw himself wholeheartedly into the work. And here's something else that I think is very, very important for us to remember. And I know we don't like this, but many times the journey may be more important than the destination. We see that literally in Zenith's life. His journey through China into Tibet to the mission was reaped more benefit to the Christian world than his short time there at the mission, uh, at, in the mission field, at, uh, in the mission compound at Bataan. So uh, we need to realize in our life, so many times we're striving at a destination. We're striving at the, what we see as this milestone in our Christian life. And we don't realize the Lord can use the journey. The Lord can use our journey as much as he can that milestone. The Lord can use what seems to us just an everyday journey. He can use it mightily if we will open our lives up to him. If we will deliberately open our lives up to him. He can use the journey as much as he can, any, any destination, any achievement. Perhaps we're seeing, oh, if I can only become a pastor, I'm going to do all this for the Lord. If I can only become a Sunday school teacher, I can do all this for the Lord. If only I can become a, a worship leader, I can do all this for the Lord. And the Lord is looking at us and saying, you can do so much for me where you are right now as you journey to a destination. You can do as much for me, if not more. And I believe we really need to take this to heart as we see this illustrated in Zenith Sanford Loftus' life, that we need to open up our hearts and lives and say, Lord, make my everyday life of benefit to you and of benefit to me. Lord, use my everyday life. Use my journey. Because, guys, as hard as it is to realize, we may never reach that milestone that we're striving after. 
we may we we may die before that or just a short time after that we don't know our lives we don't know how long we have in this world and so we need to make every day count for our own christian growth and for the lord's work we need to make our everyday lives count we can't just look and say well i'm going to be a great servant of the lord when i achieve this plateau no we need to be a servant of the lord in our everyday lives we need to be a missionary in our everyday lives we need to reach people for the lord in our everyday lives we need to let the lord's light shine through our hearts and souls in our everyday lives so that was uh, a summary of the life of zenus sanford loftus i trust that you found it interesting and i hope that it spoke to you thank you for listening this is sarah with forgotten sheep